So Pastor Brian Ottinger is a pastor, church planter, really cool guy from North Carolina. Um, he works with Love Life, which is a pro-life organization, and I trust that he will tell you more about that and explain it in a way that is probably better and more coherent than I could do. But he is here with us this week because this is a special week in the calendar of Love Life events, and that's what brings him to New York. And I said, hey, well, while you're in town, can you come preach for us? And can you preach a message, a a pro-life message? Uh, We are a um, dogmatically pro-life anti-abortion church, but I'm not a super, like, topical preacher or whatever. I don't really do a lot of like church holidays or any of that. Like I just go through a book of the Bible and and I stick with it. And I hope that Christmas falls on a sermon on, on a Sunday that is related to the incarnation because I'm probably not going to break my series for that. And there happens to be a uh, a pro-life Sunday that's in like February, I think. January, yeah. I've never done a pro-life sermon in my life. And I thought, well, if Pastor Brian's here, what better person to do it and what better time to do it than this Sunday in in the annual calendar? And that's for reasons that he will hopefully mention at some point. Um, So we're thrilled to have Pastor Brian with us, and he is from a Reformed Baptist church down in North Carolina. So I trust and hope that you'll have hearts that are open to hear him. So Pastor Brian, come on up. I guess I'm a pretty cool guy. If Andy Woodard says you're cool, then you know you've officially arrived. Um, should be a picture of my family I'd like to put up there. First off, I'm a son of God, been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I was saved August 30th, 2010. Uh, I was not married to my beautiful wife, Caroline, at the time. That's how dumb I was. It took me getting saved to get married, and by God's grace, we have these five wonderful boys. Uh, each one of them has professed, professed faith in Jesus Christ, has been baptized, is walking with the Lord. They are attending uh, our church services today, and they attended the prayer walk yesterday, even when we weren't home, right? So we must be doing something right by God's grace. So that's who I am. That's, that's what's important to me. Um, I'm also the director of Expansion with Love Life. Um, a lot of you guys are familiar with Love Life. Uh, Love Life is a ministry that really tries to seek to get you guys from the pews to the sidewalks. Um, so there's two pillars of what we do primarily is we engage people with the, the hope of the gospel and the help of the church on the sidewalks. And then we try to get pastors and churches engaged in the battle. Uh, for a long time, both of those things haven't happened. Uh, Christians haven't been at those places and churches haven't stood where they should offering the hope of the gospel. And so by God's grace, man, um, I transitioned into this role about, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And I got the assignment this past summer to become the regional shepherd of New York. It's basically just trying to give oversight. This is Lisa Washington right here. Uh, Many of you guys know her. Lisa, raise your hand real quick. She's from Times Square Church. She's been leading Love Life in the city very faithfully. She doesn't need my help. uh, But by God's grace, I'm just a connector. So I take great joy in connecting churches and pastors and people uh, to the mission of God, trying to activate and mobilize them. And one thing I noticed when I got into the city of New York was, where's the church? Like, for real, for real. Like, where's the church? Um, where's the men of God in this city? And it, I'm telling you, we have 170 partnering churches in, in, in Charlotte, which is the Bible Belt. Um, 
But as we looked around, as I looked around the landscape of, of the city with, you know, 10 million people in New York, I'm like, there's got to be a lot of churches here. And what I found was there was some, there was some faithful churches. There's some house churches, uh, but primarily a lot of the bigger churches, um, during COVID, they shut their doors. Pastors were moving, um, out of state even. Um, famous pastors were, were taking a hiatus in Florida. And while that sounds nice, like I want to go to Florida and some of you guys do too. Um, I want to honor the pastors and the churches in the city that have stood firm on the word of God. And so right now I'd like to honor Pastor Andy and Emma. Would y'all go ahead and stand up? Stand up, brother. Emma, Emma, stand up with him. This brother is, uh, he's very unique. And you guys are very blessed to have him leading your congregation. New York City is blessed to have Andy and Emma in this city. Um, we pray, we pray to God for more Andys and Emmas to be raised up from this congregation and really from the, around the nation to come. Um, to New York City, which we consider Babylon, and to proclaim the gospel. There's so many people here. This is the this is the this is this is the the land of possibilities, right? 10, 20 million people in the surrounding area, whatever it is. Those are souls creating the image of God. We'll get into more of that, but but this is a city that needs more gospel preaching churches. So so thank you, uh, Pastor Andy. I want to also honor uh, the saints here at at Providence Baptist. Um, you guys, I mean, I can look around the room and see many people that I've seen. Um, standing faithfully at the gates of hell. Uh, many of you guys have uh, participated in prayer walks. You guys are sidewalk counselors. You guys opened your homes, your mentors. Uh, pregnant Ashley Hoover, like last week, has taken uh, baby seats to hospitals at 10 p.m. and diapers, and her family's been dedicated. Anastasia, uh, who else? Who else in this room? Trenton, Christy, Hannah, all the Salyers, right? Many more of you guys, Pastor Andy's been out there, Emma, probably many of you guys have, I just don't know you. But this is a rarity. And, and for you guys, it's normal and it should be. But I'm telling you, as I, as I survey the landscape of the American church, this is abnormal. And so you guys should be thankful that you're part of this body led by a faithful shepherd. And you have faithful people like Lisa Washington, who's at East Harlem Fellowship. There's other churches in the city who may have some secondary and tertiary issues you don't really agree on. But you guys are centered around the gospel and taking that gospel message to men and women who are lost and hurting and looking for help. So we need more of that. So hopefully that this message does that today. Uh, the point of preaching primarily, I think, is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and call each of us to follow him in a self-sacrificial, faithful way, the best we can in a greater sacrifice in honor of our king. And so typically at my church, we would do expositional preaching. Um, and I'm, I'm going to do a expositional question. So the question I'm going to ask this congregation today is, do you really love life? I don't have the slides behind me. I'm trusting that Anais, where's she at? She's clicking, right? I'm going to say stuff. Oh, you don't even have, you don't have the slides at all in front of you. Like you don't even know where we're going with this, right? Do you have, so I'll just tell you when, so I'll do the cue. I'll be like, and that's, that's, that's your cue. So the question I want to ask you guys is, do you really love life? And I think as Christians, all of us would say, oh, yeah, we love life. I mean, God created life. Yes, we love life. But but the reason that I think that word really is important in there is because it really gets to the question of asking, do you really love life? So let me just break down this question for you real quick. The word do is a first person singular attached to you, the pronoun of the person being addressed. So I want to ask you individually, 
We could talk about PBC as a corporate body, but I want to ask you individually, do you really, the word really means in reality, in actuality, do you genuinely, do you truly love, the word love means to have passion or affection for, and the word life means the condition that distinguishes organisms from inorganic objects and dead organisms being manifested by growth through metabolism, reproduction, and the power of adaptation to environment through changes originating internally, things that live and grow. Do you really love life? Do you truly love life? Do you love life in reality? Now, this is a difficult question to ask because the application of this is far-reaching. God's going to search your heart today, and and God's going to really hold up, hopefully hold this sermon up as a mirror for you to evaluate this question of, do you really love life? In New York, there's a famous t-shirt, right? I heart New York, right? So people love New York or they love NY or they get the t-shirt, they take it back, they love the city. We walked past uh, toilet paper on the street today with excrement on it, sitting right next to a dead rat. And I'm like, I don't love that part of New York, but, but I do tend to love this city. I mean, we, you know, you can lay in bed in your hotel and hit DoorDash and 10 minutes later get Patagonias from Colombia and, you know, like any kind of flavor, whatever you want, like it's coming to you. Like people are looking to New York. New York's a great city. People love New York. I'm a baseball fan, right? Any, any baseball fans? Okay, like just, the, just all the old guys. When you get older and you become mature, you'll start to like baseball because it's, like it's like a relationship. There's a game every night. You start to watch players develop. My team, the Atlanta Braves, won the World Series. Praise God. We got some Braves fans in here. All right. We don't even have that many Braves fans at my church in Charlotte. But, but I would say I love the Atlanta Braves. And, and the way you know that I love the Atlanta Braves is that, I, you can ask my wife, I pretty much watch every game either in summary or from my phone every night. And during the World Series and playoffs, I was up till midnight every night watching the game. So what we do is is really an outpouring of what's in our heart, right? And of course, we know the ultimate form of love is Jesus Christ at the cross and his sacrifice. But what I'm saying is what we live out shows you what we love. So the question is, do you really love life? Some of you really love food. Some of you really love animals. Some of you really love people, traveling, etc. And so when I ask this question of, do you really love life? I'm hoping that this gospel-centered, Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church who seeks out to live the gospel in a very dark place, if you didn't know that, that you guys will just ask that question right to yourself right now. Do, do I really love life? So maybe just close your eyes and just in your mind, you can say it out loud if you want, in your mind, but like, do I really love life? Just ask yourself that question. Do I really love life? And so before we move on to talk about what it means to love life from Psalm 139, um, every time I have the opportunity to speak in front of anybody, I don't ever want to assume that everyone in here is a believer of Jesus. So before we move into the question of do you love life, the question I want to ask you is, do you really know God? She's good. You already, you're, you're queued up. I love it. Do you really know God? Because I don't think we can really love life unless we really love God, unless we really know who God is. And so here's the reality is that God created us in his image to be in a relationship with him. He, when he created everything in the beginning, we know it was all good. We had a relationship with him. We had perfect fellowship with, with man and woman. So much so we were running around naked, 
right? Just unashamed, eating the fruits of the trees, like hanging with animals and all that good stuff. And then mankind in, in our own sinful, wicked way said, we want to disobey the one rule God gave us, not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And as, as Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, what they really said to God was, we don't really need you. Like, thank you for what you've done, but we're, we're going to do our own thing. And after, after they ate from the tree, shame fell on them. Uh, sin entered the world. They felt guilty and ashamed and afraid. They hid from God. They went and slayed an animal and they used it as a loincloth. They were trying to hide for themselves or atone for their own sin. And then we see a couple chapters later in Genesis that the Tower of Babel was formed by people who said, it went from being two people who said, we'll do our own thing. And it went from an entire group or entire city of people said, we're going to make ourselves our own way to achieve godliness or to become like God or to become a God, right? That's what the Tower of Babel was. And God, God just hit it off and people, people scattered everywhere, right? This is the Tower of Babel. And then when you read throughout the entire Old Testament, you'll see story after story after story of how sin plagued the earth, whether through pestilence, whether through um, just civilizations turning on each other, death, famine. It was, it's just a nasty plague-filled book, right? Obviously, you see God's grace through it, but you just see the, the reality of the depravity of sin unleashed on civilization, but God in his grace in Genesis 3 said, I won't leave it this way. I'm going to send a savior. And the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. The New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. So we get to the New Testament and we see that God didn't say, hey, y'all figure it out for yourself. Or, hey, I'm waiting for you guys. Like, when are you going to get it right? He said, no, I'm going to send the perfect sacrifice. God himself coming in the flesh to live the life that you could not and die the death that you deserve. We all deserve death for our sin. We all deserve the penalty of sin, which is an eternity in hell, an eternity of God's judgment being poured out on us. That's the bad news. But Jesus Christ came to be the victor over sin, death, and shame, and the grave. And for everyone in this room who has put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've turned from your sin and turned towards Jesus. You said, God, not my will, but your will be done. You've been born again. You've been bought with the blood of Christ. You've been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. It's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And if you're here today and that's not your story, I want to encourage you that the, the weight of your sin is, is hanging over you and you deserve the wrath of God. You deserve the judgment of God. But God in his kindness sent some cool dude, as Andy said, from Charlotte, North Carolina to tell you that there's a cooler God who is, is here today offering you his love, offering you his grace, no matter what you've done. Murderers can be redeemed. Child molesters can be redeemed. Thieves can be redeemed. Drug dealers can be redeemed. Adulterers can be redeemed if you trust in Jesus. So no matter what you've done, I want to let you know here today that God's grace is sufficient. And if, if that's not your story and it is right now and the Holy Spirit's working and tugging at your heart, talk to Pastor Andy, whoever brought you to church. You can talk to me after the service. But before we move into the question of do you love life, I want to ask you, do you know God? Amen? And so as we consider the issues of spiritual life, it should move us, those who've been bought with his spirit, it should move us into the question of physical life. Do we really love life? So we, when we discuss this issue of life, we must truly consider the source, the creator of life, the Lord Jesus, God the Father, God the Spirit. 
And he's instructed us in his word in, in one of my favorite chapters, especially working with Love Life that we reference very uh, frequently is Psalm 139. And so if you have your Bibles uh, with you, and everyone does, because you have your phones, you should have a Bible app on your phone. You guys can go to Psalm 139. The words will be on the screen. And the reason that the Word of God is so important is I can get up here and tell you all kinds of stuff about what I feel or what I believe, but nothing is as important as what God says in His Word. Amen? Amen. So Psalm 139, we're going we're gonna to read, and I'm taking a really shallow dive. Pastor Andy's y'all's pastor, he can do deeper dives and all this stuff, but I'm just trying to motivate and activate you guys to a greater obedience. So um, I'm going to give you the words on the screen. We're going to read together verses one through six. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The big idea from these first six verses is that God is omniscient. God is omniscient. God knows everything. The psalmist here is saying whether he goes somewhere, God's there before him, God's behind him. God knows his thoughts when he's lay, laying down. God knows all his ways. And so again, this is a, remember, do you love life? I want to let you know right now that God knows all your ways. I don't care how pro-life you are in your, your social media. I don't care how um, pro-life you are in your t-shirt wearing or whatever it is that you do, right, to tell people that you're pro-life. I want to encourage you that God truly knows your heart. That's a scary thing. But God never comes to bring his word to condemn us, but to help encourage us and call us into that greater obedience. And so I want to ask you the question, if God is omniscient, do you really love life? In your heart of hearts, do you really love life? Moving on to verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So the big point here is that God is omnipresent, right? He knows everything, and he's everywhere. You can't hide from him. You can't. A lot of people try to hide from God in church, right? We don't want to let the Lord deal with our conscience, so we do church stuff. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do church stuff, right? We should always fellowship with people. But you can't hide from God today. Nobody can hide from God ever. God is everywhere. Verses 13 through 16 says, For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, which I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance 
In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so the point here is that God is the creator of all human life. God is the creator of all human life. Now, this is where I'm going to take a little bit deeper dive, kind of brushing through those verses. You guys, he, he didn't exposit that stuff. So I'm trying to take a deeper dive into this point here is that God is the creator of all human life. This doctrine of God creating man in his image is called the Imago Dei. And the reason why I want to touch on the image of God is because I believe if we see who we are in light of who God created us to be, it will move us to the right action. Your right understanding of who you are will ultimately affect what you do. When you understand who you are, you'll understand what you are to do. Your being leads to your doing. Your identity leads to activity. So, I'm going to take a page out of uh, Pastor Andy's, one of, one of Pastor Andy's favorite preachers, a guy named Ed Litton. Um, you get, some of y'all know who Ed Litton is. Um, no, just, just to, for, for the record, because being recorded, that's not his favorite. But uh, Ed Litton is kind of infamous for, uh, yeah, quoting other people's stuff and not giving them credit. I'm actually going to give people credit. So I am going to uh, read for you guys, and I'm going to talk about a little bit what it means, uh, the image of God. And there's a great book. Anybody ever heard of Glenn Sunshine? Raise your hand if you heard of Glenn. I heard of, mm, it's like six of you guys. It's got a great book called Slaying Leviathan that really talks about, you know, how the church should respond against tyranny, how we should resist the Great Reset and all that stuff that Andy loves to, to talk about in his personal time. Um, but... I read that book, Slaying Leviathan. I was like, I really like the way this guy writes. And he just had this little book. I love little books. Um, I'm kind of, you know, ADD and all that stuff, as you guys can probably already tell. So little books hold my attention well, and he writes very clearly and just he speaks to me. So he, he made this book called The Image of God. There it is. That's a picture of the book. And let me tell y'all real quick, I've never done Google Slides, so I was like, it took me like five hours to do these slides. We walk in here this morning, Andy's like, I don't know if we're going to be able to use the slides. I was like, oh, cool. Thanks, man. Um, but yeah, this is a picture of the book. It's a great book. I highly encourage you guys to get it. Uh, he does a really great job of detailing what it means to be made in the image of God. The book's probably 10 bucks on Amazon. Um, get the book. Check out Glenn Sunshine. Uh, most of his stuff I've read so far is really good. So um, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? The first thing it means is we are made like him and not the other way around. We are made like him and not the other way around. Um, God isn't made in our image, but we are made in his image. God is not an anthropomorphic deity created in our image, but we are theomorphic forms of him. He, he created us to be like him. Too often we put ourselves in the place of God where instead of wanting to follow God, we kind of make ourselves our own way, our own little gods, right? The first commandment is there should be no other gods before me. And this is what it means when we start to, to make gods of ourselves. Muhammad Ali, the self-proclaimed goat at the time, this is pre-Tyson, right? Because we all know Tyson's the goat. Uh, Muhammad Ali was on an airplane uh, with a bunch of passengers and there was turbulence on the plane and the stewardess went around and she said, everybody needs to put their seatbelt on. And he, wouldn't, he refused to put his seatbelt on. And she said, uh, Mr. Ali, you, you need to put your seatbelt on. He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked back and said, Superman don't need no plane. 
And so he had this idea that he was invincible. And we all know, um, you know, later in life, he would have Parkinson's and be a shell of himself. So he was not a God. He was not the greatest of all time. Jesus is the greatest of all time. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, did I say that right? Is it Christian or Cristiano? Man, I don't even watch soccer. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi were being interviewed about uh, their status and their just prolificness as these football players. And Ronaldo said, um, as, as he was being interviewed about his influence on soccer, Ronaldo said he believed he was sent by God to show the world and teach the world how to play football. Pretty bold claim. Well, the interviewer looked at Messi and said, well, what do you think about that? He said, I don't remember sending him. Again, another example of someone prideful trying to take the place of God. A coppersmith once said to Winston Churchill, I am a self-made man. Churchill responded that that man had just relieved God of his most solemn duty. God is the creator. And I want to tell you that man trying to become a God or become his own God isn't something exclusive to celebrities, star athletes, politicians, but something that each one of us struggles with, which is why I think we need to never forget who indeed created us, who we were created from. He is the creator, and he created us in his image, not the other way around. If he is like us, then what do we need him for? This is what happened in the garden. They became less dependent on God and decided to go their own way. Secondly, being made in the image of God doesn't mean that we are made to look like him physically. It's not about his bodily form. John 4.24 is clear that God is what? Spirit. Therefore, we don't worship images. Second commandment, right? You should not worship any graven images. You should make the little idols for yourself and worship those things. The Mormon cult teaches that we have bodies like God. This form of idolatry creates a God that looks like us. This has led people to worship a white Jesus. This has led people to worship black Jesus. I've never been to Asia, but I'm sure they might worship Asian Jesus, right? We, we want to we know what God looks like so we can worship him, but God is spirit. Being made in the image of God is not about our bodily form. Yes, Jesus came in the form of a man, but it had nothing to do with him wanting us to worship his physical body. Rather, it was about him being born a man so that he could be the ultimate propitiation to be the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. Our sin required a man to be sacrificed. His name was Jesus. Now, you're probably sitting here wondering what the phrase image of God meant in the ancient Near East. Great question. Let me tell you. In the Mesopotamian world, life was unpredictable and unsecure. The area was subject to erratic and destructive flooding and was open to invasion from armies. It is no wonder that these city-states were literally built around religion. The center of every city was a ziggurat, just like Babel, a temple to the city's major deity, and priests dominated the civilization, at least initially. Over time, a power struggle ensued between warlords known as Ensi and the priest. And in an effort to legitimize the authority of these highly theocratic societies, the NC associated themselves with the, with the gods, claiming to be the gods' official regents and representatives to the world. 
This enabled them to emerge as kings with a credible claim to rule over the priests. These kings were commonly referred to as the images of God. They were God's face in this world, which is what gave them the right to rule. Sounds familiar to me. If you guys remember back in September, uh, Governor Hochul, am I saying that right? Governor Hochul spoke at a congregation in this city. She spoke at a church. And what she said was this. I need you to be my apostles. Hey, don't, don't, don't let this be the soundbite from the sermon. <laughs> this is what she said. I need you to be my apostles. I need you to go out and talk about it and say, we owe this to each other. We love each other. Jesus taught us to love one another. And how do you show that love? But to care about each other enough to say, please get the vaccine because I love you and I want you to live. I want our kids to be safe when they're in schools. I want to be safe when you go to a doctor's office or a hospital and are treated by somebody. You don't want to get the virus from them. You're already sick or you wouldn't be there. We have to solve this, my friends. I need every one of you. I need you to let them know that this is how we can fight this pandemic. This is crazy, right? It's, it's bad enough that, that it, you know, the church has bought into the lie that Romans 13 clearly refutes that the government can tell us how to worship. But now, now the government's coming into churches and telling people how to live outside the walls. This is insanity. Because these governors think that they are God's spokesmen. It's clear. It's one thing I love about New York City, that the people here, the mask is off. They'll let you know up front that they hate Jesus and they hate you because of your faith in him. Praise God for that. Where we live, my brother's laughing over here. Seriously, dude. I mean, I remember we used to do evangelism at county fairs and, and you'd walk up to everybody and start telling about Jesus and everyone's like, I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And you're like, dang, it's just the Bible belt, man. But around here, it's in your face. There's a clear line and I love that. So here's the question, who is called to rule? Who does have the supreme authority on this earth? Joe Biden? Donald Trump? Governor Hochul, this is a great question. Who has the supreme authority here on earth? Who indeed has the royal authority to speak on God's behalf? Remember, when God created us in his image, his plan was us for us to rule through him. We were called to take dominion of this earth. He gave us that authority. But because of sin, that authority has led to corruption, which led to tyranny but for all of us who have put our faith in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, we, have, we now have that righteous authority that's been restored to us. His authority is what empowers us. His word is our guide, which rules us and helps us rule righteously. We are his royal ambassadors with his royal authority. We are called to speak his words on behalf for his glory because we are created in his image we have his royal authority to be faithful stewards. Man, she's good. You got it. I want, I want, to, I want to just let you guys like resonate on this for a second. Like you guys may know this well and you're like, this dude's telling us everything we already know. Andy taught us that last week. But I'm telling you, if the church would understand this doctrine, this, this America would look much different. By the way, this dude's from North Carolina. I paid him to come here and Amen. <laughs> He was cheap, though. That's Wayne. Listen, 
This is so important. We don't have to lay down or forfeit our rights towards any society or any government to run all over us. They can make corrupt laws and we don't have to follow them. And one of the most corrupt laws we see in our land is the legalization of abortion. Babies being murdered in the womb. We actually have the royal decree of the Lord Jesus to go, therefore, at those places of death. We've been given authority, but this authority is the authority of a steward, not as an independent monarchy. Any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Basically, any nerds in here. Okay, (laughs) raise your hand if you're a nerd. All right. If you remember the stewards of Gondor, they had absolute authority to rule over the city in the absence of the king, protecting it and holding it until such a time as the king returned. Correct me if I'm wrong on this name. Denethor? Man, nerd points. Denethor makes it clear to Boromir that they can never become kings because it is not their place. If and when the king returned, the stewards were to return their stewardship to him and were to be judged for their faithfulness in which they carried out their duties. In the same way, the earth is the Lord's and not ours. We may have dominion, but it is not only the dominion of a steward, excuse me, but it is the, I hate reading my stuff. All right, in the same way, the earth is the Lord's, not ours. We may have dominion, but it is not but it is only the dominion of a steward, sorry, carrying with it the responsibility to pass on a carefully tendered and protected world to our heirs and to Christ when he returns. As 1 Corinthians 4.2 puts it, it is a requirement that we need to all be found faithful to steward all that he has given us, all of his creation. This is not a new understanding of our environmental responsibilities. For example, John Calvin who is regularly and wrongly vilified, amongst other things, for providing theological justification for out-and-out control capitalism and accompanying exploitation of the environment. He had this to say in his commentary on Genesis. Let him who possesses a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by his negligence, but let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it or even better cultivate it. Let him so feed on its fruits that he neither dissipates it by luxury nor permits it to be marred or ruined by neglect. Moreover, that this economy and this diligence with respect to those good things which God has given us to enjoy may flourish among us. Let everyone regard himself as the steward of all things which he possesses. Then he will neither conduct himself dissolutely nor corrupt by abuse those things which God required to be preserved. In his sermon on Genesis 2, 7 through 15, Calvin adds that whether rich or poor, we must remember that whatever we have, we are to use it with such knowledge that one day we will have to give an account to God for what we have done with these things that he has entrusted us. We will have to give an account to God of what we have done with these things that he has entrusted us. You guys live in the city. Do Do people camp around here? I got a bunch of no's. So if you camp, there's a principle. Leave the place better than when you found it, right? Leave it better than you found it. That's why I tell my kids all the time, because if not, it would be crazy. That's the dominion principle, really. Like, go into a place and, and leave it better than when you found it. And I believe, by God's grace, this church is, is making, where are we at? What part of the city are we in? 
man, there's like, y'all just said five different places. You guys don't even know where this church is. <laughs> Upper East Side, Lower East Side. Listen, y'all are making New York City a better place. New York City is better off now than, than, than when this church started, by God's grace. You guys are taking dominion at Margaret Sanger Center. You guys are taking dominion at the churches. Pastor Andy's taking dominion uh, on the subways with the stickers. <laughs> Sorry, I say that out loud. I love those stickers, by the way. Listen, we're taking dominion because, because every square inch of this earth is God's. All of it's his. We need to leave this city better than when we found it. We learned the first principle that, that we are created in his image and not the other way around. The second principle is that we are created to rule as faithful stewards. And lastly, I want to share that we are created in his image. Therefore, we are dignified above all else. We are dignified above all else. Did you guys know that Spain granted human rights to apes? Did you know that? Did you know that in Switzerland, they have enshrined plants' rights in their constitution? True story. Did you know in this country in 1973, the same year that abortion became a legal right, the U.S. created the Endangered Species Act to protect animals the same year that we advocated for the destruction of human beings in the womb. We don't have to look any further than the first chapter of the book of Romans to see that depraved humans love worshiping animals and created things in opposition to those who've been created in the image of God. We prefer the wildebeest to the women and men created in his image. Now, obviously, as I stated in the last point, we should care for God's creation. We should love and care for plants and animals. But we ought to never prioritize that care over those who are created in his image. What makes human beings so special and so dignified, you might ask? Because our dignity flows out of the one who created us. We are created in God's image and God alone is the creator. He didn't put his image in plants. He didn't put it in animals. He didn't put it in the seat you're sitting in, the clothes you're wearing, but he put it inside of you and every human being. We have the supreme dignity of our creator because our creator is supreme, amen? amen? Only humans have that special purpose and therefore the highest level of dignity. Since we are God's regents on this earth, an attack on a fellow image bearer is indeed an act against God himself. If you wanted to know what God has to say about humans murdering each other, you can flip with me to Genesis 9, 6, or I'll read it for you says this, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. We should grieve any and all murder, but abortion is the clearest and most in-your-face form of murder of our time. Over the past 48 years in America alone, there's been 65 million babies, 65 million people, 65 million human beings who have been ripped apart and destroyed while the church has mostly sat back, said nothing and done nothing. I wish the statistic wasn't true. And every time I hear it, I'm like, this is awful. In New York city alone, more black babies are aborted annually than born. That's sick. Talk about systemic racism. There's no greater example of systemic racism than that that more black babies in this city are aborted than born. And you, the girls can tell you and the guys can tell you that go to the abortion center, 
the majority of the people that go there are black and brown. Right? If you guys didn't watch the Margaret Sanger special we did, you should go back and watch it. It's powerful. We expose the deeds of darkness to help educate the church to empower you to take action. Margaret Sanger was a racist. She believed in eugenics. She partnered with the Ku Klux Klan. She partnered with Nazi Germany. They swapped stories and strategies on how they could eradicate the undesirables, the black, brown, and the disabled. It's wicked. Image bearers of God with a different color of skin. Eliminated because of the color of their skin. It's disgusting. God has created us in his image, and then he has entrusted us to steward his creation. So what part of God's creation do you guys think is most special to him? What have you learned in the sermon? What, what is the most, what's the pinnacle of God's creation? People. Because we have his image. And so my question is, how are we doing, church? How are you doing, brother and sister? If he's called us to be stewards, if, if he's given us the highest dignity and privilege to steward his creation with human beings at the pinnacle of his creation, how are we doing stewarding this responsibility? How are we doing with that? All right, I want to circle back to Psalm 139. I want to read verse 17 and 18. It says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. The big idea here is that God is personal, God is relational. God didn't just create us in his image and then cast us off, but God, God desired to be in relationship with us. And through his word, we understand who God is. Amen. And so like maybe even today you're, you're like wrestling with, I've never done anything or I haven't done enough. And maybe God's searching your heart right now and he's, and he's relating to you and he's, and he's working on you. It's not me, right? I'm not a manipulator or anything like that. The Holy Spirit is, is challenging, challenging you about your stewardship of God's creation. And that's good, right? God doesn't share these things to condemn us, but God wants to encourage us, empower us. He wants to give you courage to be a better steward of this. But here's what happens. I'm going to read verse 19 through 22. Here's what happens when God awakens us to the truth. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. And so here's what happens, church. When we start digging into these atrocities and this Holocaust in our day, what happens is we start pointing fingers, Right? Oh man, like Joe Biden's wicked and the great reset. And, you know, I'm the biggest conspiracy truther in the room. My wife will tell you that. We start pointing fingers and look at all these wicked people. Look at all, look at all this bad stuff they've done. Right. And then what I love happens here in, in the second part is God is calling us to be holy, but we blame others. And this, in the last part of the verse, it says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so every time you point the finger, you've heard the saying, what do you do next? Pull the thumb. Every time you point the finger, pull the thumb. Every time you find fault in someone else, like if we find fault in a sinful government, 
Like, isn't that kind of obvious? Like, we're going to blame sinful people for being sinful. I'm not saying we don't speak out against them. I'm not saying we don't, you know, resist the great reset and all that. But like, like instead of pointing the finger, pull the thumb and say, like the psalmist said, search me, O Lord. Where's the fault in me? Where, where's my complacency? What have I done? And so that's what I want you guys to do today is, is, is God's called you to be holy. He's given you this divine stewardship of the most dignified people in our city. How many abortions in New York City annually, Lisa? 1150 a week, quick mass times 52. Is that 50,000? 50, 50,000 babies. Any babies? There's a baby in the back over there. How old's that baby? Anybody know? She can't even hear me. That's a legit cry room. She's two. She's two. Right? How many people are in this room right now? 70. You said 70? Like, set, how many a week? 1,100? 1,150? How many a day at the Margaret Sanger Center? So, so every two days at Margaret Sanger Center, they're killing this many people. Look around. Just, t- just take a look around. Like, how valuable is your life? How valuable are the relationships you have? the food you eat, the taste, like all the things we enjoy, these babies will never have that experience. And it's celebrated. It's deemed healthcare, right? It's just, it's insane. So what's God called you to? I wanted to show you guys a video um, of a D&E. Um, it's, it's a cartoon video. I don't know if you guys have like a group chat or something. I'd love to, for you guys to see it. You guys with technology, it's weird. We're in New York City and your technology is old. Like, come on, man. This is supposed to be like the cutting edge place. In North Carolina, our video, actually our videos mess up too sometimes. It's like a preacher's worst nightmare. You, you try to do something special and it doesn't work. But there's a video by a guy named Anthony Levantino. He was, a, um, he was an abortionist. He was a gynecologist. And he did 1,200 abortions. And in the video, uh, I encourage you to watch it, and I encourage you to watch it with your family. I encourage you to watch it with your friends. Watch it with people who don't know Jesus. Watch it with everybody. Share the video. But, but watch it yourself. And it'll show you in a cartoon fashion, um, you know, what a d looks like. And basically, they, you know, open the mother's cervix, and they go in, and they start ripping the, the, the body parts of a baby with precepts, limb from limb. And because the head is so big to fit through uh, the canal, they crush the head in many pieces. And then what they do is they, they make sure all the pieces are there and they put them together, they reform this baby, and then they throw it in the trash can. And that's, that's, that's actually what's happening, okay? And I know that's hard to hear. I watched the, the whole thing with my family I showed you guys earlier. And my youngest son, he couldn't even, excuse me, my second youngest son, he couldn't even talk. I was like, what's wrong, man? And he's like, I don't, like, I don't know what to say. And I think we need to remember what's happening. This isn't medical freedom. This isn't a women's right. This is, this is death. And we need to watch that video. So if you, Andy, if you show them that video later, um, that would be helpful. So coming back to the question, do you really love God and life? And the reason I think we don't love life primarily is because it's costly it's going to cost you something. Um, any, raise your hand if you were at the prayer walk yesterday. 
man, about half the room. So that's just a weird place to be. Like I'm kind of like on the spectrum with noise and lights and I wear sunglasses all the time. And, and sometimes I wear my sunglasses to hide from you guys. Like, I don't want people to see me. And when I was out there at, at Margaret Sanger Center, man, like I just kind of wanted to hide. It just feels so weird when you're at that place. There's, there's this darkness, this, this pressing on your shoulders. And you guys know you go out there a lot. It's just, it's not normal. It's like, hey, on the other side of this wall, babies are, are having happened to them what I just described. And here we are. And so it just feels awkward. And, and that's the thing that will keep you from engaging in this battle. But I want to encourage you in this way. The Renaissance artist Michelangelo, there's a story about him sculpting a gigantic piece of marble rock. You guys heard this story? And it's this big square rock, and, and this priest comes in the room, and Michelangelo has got his, you know, his pick out and his hammer, and he's, and he's crying, he's weeping. And the priest's like, dude, what's wrong? And he says, there's an angel that's trapped inside this block that I want to get out. Like he knew what was inside that block before it was ever formed. And when you go out and you step out in faith in these uncomfortable places, God is going to sculpt you and make you more in the image of God. Romans 8.29 is a promise to the church. Everybody loves Romans 8.28, the coffee cup verse. God works all things for good for those who have been called according to his purposes, those who love him. And then Romans 8.29 says, for those whom he calls, he's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. His promise to every believer in here is if you have the spirit of God, he's going to conform you to his image. How? Through sanctification. Any, there's, I don't know if there's sports fans in here. New York has bad teams, by the way, for, for football. It's just true. It's true, right? You know, it's true. I was going to say, most people don't get sanctified watching football and eating chicken wings, but New York fans probably do. You know what I'm saying? But listen, I can promise you three things will happen when you step out on this battle. One, you will be sanctified. And you know what you need? You know what this world needs? You know what New York City needs? Less of you and more of Jesus. You will be sanctified. The second thing is, babies will be saved. And the third is, moms and dads will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Sign me up. Sign me up for that. But ultimately, we love because he first loved us. Jesus says it wasn't, it wasn't good enough God could have done, God could have saved us however he wanted. But God sent a human being into human history to walk with us for 33 years. And then to, to walk for three years being ridiculed by this world as he was blessing them through miraculous deeds, through teaching. They ridiculed, they tormented, which led him to the cross where he would be destroyed. And he did that because he loved us. He modeled the way for us. Christians, if you're a Christian and you love comfort more than you love Jesus, you might not be a Christian or you might need to repent. And I'm, I'm talking to myself. I don't like going out there. I don't like, I got neighbors, right? People are like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, how do I sanitize this answer so they don't hate me? I've just come to the realization. I'm like, man, we help rescue babies from death and give moms and dads help and hope. And if, and if you hate that, man, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like we're, we're saving people's lives. And listen, guys, Providence Baptist Church, you guys can help save lives. 
It's not enough to just say, I'm praying for Ashley Anastasia. Trenton's out there. No, listen, God can, God can and will use you. And he will sanctify you along the way because you're not going to want to do it. But Jesus Christ modeled for us what true humility looked like, what true sacrifice looks like. That's what we need. That's what the city needs. Image bearers of God who've been restored by King Jesus going saying, listen, I'm laying down my life because Jesus laid down his life for mine. That's what this city needs. It doesn't need another coffee shop, another raw juice place. <laughs> like there's so many here. There's all probably really good. Bow broth, all that, man. You can find anything. It doesn't need, what this city needs is Jesus Christ. This church partnered with other churches who love Jesus, who have the gospel message quick on their lips. Will you do that? What's God called you to today? Do you really love life? Do you really love life? If you love life, I just want you to say yes. Do you love life? Yes. Where's that babe? Next, I want you to say, I love life. I love life. And, and this one, I want you to say, if you mean it, I really love life. All right, let's pray. Father, we're unworthy. We don't deserve to know you, to be in your presence. We don't deserve to be your ambassadors. But God, the mystery of the gospel is that you saved unworthy people. And God, you've taken us from darkness to light and, and you've given us the awesome responsibility and privilege to go and rescue those, both being led to the slaughter physically and eternally. And so God, while I'm on one hand extremely grateful for Pastor Andy and the, the missionaries here in this church, on the other hand, I'm, I'm just discouraged by the church in general of, of how we've just been so absent, apathetic. But God, we know that you are doing great work. We know that you will continue to do great work. And we know that you'll do it through this church. And so, Father, I, I just say thank you. Thank you for that. May you empower and embolden many more people in this room to declare the gospel in the workplace, on the sidewalks, in the shopping centers, all across the city. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for this light in the darkness. Encourage them, embolden them. Help them to know they don't need to give up, but they need to rest in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can rest in you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.